Father, we're thankful that you're with us this morning. That you pursue us. God, that you love us. That you give us joy through knowing you and being in your presence. Would you help us see that this morning, wherever we are in our state of mind? Would we take a deep breath? Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to be transformed into your likeness as we look at your word? God, and we surrender to your spirit. Meet us, change us into your son. We ask that you do it. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Well, good morning, Redemption Peoria. It's good to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, it's not already open. Open it up to Habakkuk, which is what we read. Do me a solid this morning. Um, if you have a paper Bible with you, like old school hard copy, it won't really apply if you have your phone. Um, Turn to the first page in the table of contents because the book of Habakkuk is one of these tiny books. It's only 56 verses, three chapters. It's in the back of the Old Testament. I had to go to my table of contents three times this week in trying to find it instead of flipping randomly through it. So um, go ahead and situate yourself there. That's where we're going to be out of today. Uh, we are wrapping up our Advent series this morning. And as you're flipping your Bibles open, let me just give you a preview of where we're going to be going next year in 2023 on Sundays together in the Bible as we come into this space and we rehearse the story of God through the scriptures and a bunch of other elements, uh, where we're going to be going as far as preaching. Uh, January 1st, we'll have a standalone service where uh, Jim Ellis will again help us every year as he does. He's the, the, the wisdom in the room to uh, talk to us about how do we fix our eyes on Christ? What does it look like for this coming year? for us to be fixed on Jesus and not get uh, easily entangled by the things that pull at us time and time again. And then after that, we'll have four weeks in Luke chapter 12, looking at Jesus and this idea of what does it mean to be rich towards God? So we'll take four weeks there. After that, we'll take nine weeks and we will open up to Isaiah chapter 40 all the way through chapter 55. It's really one major thought, uh, chapters 40 through 55. And so we'll spend nine weeks doing that. It's going to be really good. Uh, that'll lead us to Easter where we'll celebrate the resurrection together. We do baptisms here historically at Redemption Peoria. And so, man, it's just a sweet time to get together and watch people get baptized and share their stories. And so uh, if you're yet to be baptized, we would love to have a conversation with you. If you're a part of our community and want to make that decision, come find us at the Connect Desk. Uh, after we have Easter, uh, we'll do our topical series. We do about one of those a year. And so we'll spend seven weeks in a series called Beautiful Union. And in that series, we're really going to be looking at what does the Bible have to say about our sexuality? Right? There's a lot of confusing narratives out there right now about what that means. And so we want to take a hard, close look at what Jesus says, what the Bible says about that issue, and how do we walk in obedience and faith? The church has historically not done a great job in this conversation, whether it's been um, kind of wrapped in shame or wrapped in silence. And so we want to have honest conversations to say, what does it mean to live out faithfully to walk with Jesus in this category? So we'll take seven weeks doing that. After that, we'll spend 13 weeks in 1 John, um, which if you know 1 John, it's only five chapters. So we'll really slow down our pace at that point, kind of go verse by verse through that. And then after that, we will spend 12 weeks, the entire book in the book of Revelation. Easy, right? No problem there. <laughs> Should be fun. Uh, and then by the end of that series, we'll be back into Advent in four weeks in Advent, the last four weeks of the year towards Christmas. So um, if you're not familiar with Advent, uh, if you did grow up in a context that celebrates Advent, it's part of the church calendar. The church has been doing this for a year. Advent simply means arrival in Latin. 
And it's the four weeks leading up to the birth of Jesus celebrating Christmas. And it's this idea that you're waiting in expectation. Like God's people, we're waiting in expectation for a Messiah to come. For somebody to come to fix all the problems that we experience on a daily basis. And God's people in the Old Testament were praying for this Messiah to come. And we believe he comes in a manger, in Jesus. And so uh, we have intentionally been using this time, this last four weeks, and the title of our series in this Advent season is An Invitation to the King's Table. We just finished a series, if you were with us, for the last 20 weeks, walking through uh, a man named Saul, a man named David, and a man named Solomon in a series we did called We Want a King, looking at the kings of the Old Testament and going like, man, we all mess up in pretty big ways, and we need Jesus to be our king. And because of that, we said we want to continue that theme of, of uh, the king inviting us to his table in Jesus. And so really, um, some of the heartbeat and, and the reason we decided we wanted to talk about an invitation to the king's table is we take communion every week here at Redemption Peoria. And if you've been around us for a while, we talk about how we rehearse the story of God as we come in here and realign ourselves with what's true in the gospel as we go back out into the world. And there's other messages that will tell us opposite of that. And we say, man, what does communion actually mean for us? We talk about in this story, it should be the climax of our service, that as we come to the table together to remember Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and what he's done for us and how it changes us. But if we're honest, as leaders and elders, we're going like, communion just kind of feels like a tack on at the end. Like, and we go, we want to make an adjustment to that. As we believe this should form and shape us and how we understand our relationship with Jesus. And so we physically move. The elements used to be off to the side and people would come and serve them. We physically move the table right here, even as a, a visual focal point. So when you walk in, you realize, okay, something's going to happen here. And we believe that's true. And even in the midst of this idea of being invited to the king's table and how it shapes and forms us, we looked at these four different categories that Avent historically has been run through. We looked at the idea of hope and the idea of peace, last week love, and then today joy. And how does what you do in this moment, when you come forward on Sunday, how does hope, how do you get hope at the table? How do you get peace at the table? How do you get love at the table? And then today, how, how do you experience joy when you come to the king's table and you dine with Jesus? That's the question we're trying to answer in our series together. So again, we're going to be in the book of Habakkuk. Uh, hopefully you find yourself there. Let me just give you some context for this book, this Old Testament book. As we jump in, we're really going to be spending our time at the very end of it in chapter 3. Uh, as I mentioned, we came out of that series, We Want a King. And if you were with us, we saw in 2 Samuel, towards the end, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he takes over. And if you remember, man, he's like, he's like all kinds of toxic in his leadership. He does terrible things. And even in the midst of that, then Jeroboam takes over. And Jeroboam begins to like institute this common idolatry, even in the culture, that it's okay not to go to the temple anymore. You can worship these other gods. It's more convenient over here. And that continues in Israel's history. And what happens at the time is there's a split in the kingdom. Israel in the north becomes Israel and then Judah in the south. Well, this happens for the next 400 years or so until the Assyrians come in and the Assyrians capture Israel in the north. And then not much longer after that, the Babylonians come in and they attack and take over Israel from the south and Judah. And they take Israel into exile 
for 70 years. If you know the books of Daniel and Jeremiah, that's where we find ourselves in that passage. And so where we are in Habakkuk is he is writing in the final decades of Israel's southern kingdom, right before Babylon comes in and takes over. That's the setting that we're going to find ourselves in today. And in the midst of the culture, man, it was just massively idolatrous, and there was massive injustice happening. And what Habakkuk says, it's three chapters, and the way that it lays out in the format is the first two chapters, Habakkuk is going to God and going like, this doesn't make any sense. God, if you're good and you're righteous and I'm looking around and people are doing all kinds of evil and you're not doing anything, you just seem to be silent. And he goes back and forth with God in the first two chapters. And in the third chapter, he offers a response and a song of praise in the midst of it. If, if you have a Bible open, just fl- flip back really quickly to the first chapter, just again, to give us some framework for where we're going. Habakkuk chapter 1, this is the first four verses of, uh, of the book. It says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. This is him speaking to the Lord. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Again, Habakkuk is looking around. Where are you? If you're good and you're in control, like why are you letting these things happen? The law, your word seems paralyzed. Nobody's following it. The people that are violent just seem to get more violent and they keep growing. What is going on? God's response to him in chapters one and two, it's interesting. He doesn't really, like, like you feel like Habakkuk's like, listen, God, I need an answer. Like what's the deal? And God doesn't really answer him directly. But he does say this. He goes, Habakkuk, actually, it's going to get worse. I'm actually going to bring somebody in, another nation to come in and take over the nation of Israel. Take over my people as a form of discipline. So again, put yourself in the shoes of Habakkuk. You're going like, okay, I'm looking around and I'm seeing my circumstances. And maybe some of you feel this way, like, it's not going well. And God, you're good. Why don't you show up and do something? I'm waiting for you to do something. And God comes back and goes, actually, you're going to need to wait longer. It's actually going to get worse before it gets better. And you just go, what? That's how he's feeling in this moment. And the question is, like, if things are going to get worse for God's people, how do they experience joy in the midst of their circumstances? Can they even experience joy in the midst of their circumstances? That's the question we're going to go after this morning. And to do that, we just really need to find, like, if we're talking about the word joy, what do we mean by that? Like, the idea of joy has been defined as an intense, momentary experience of positive emotion. One that makes us smile and laugh and jump. That's, that's what joy is. If psychologists say that happiness is kind of our, our feelings measured over time, but joy is about how we're feeling right now in the moment. And as humans, man, we're all hunting for joy, aren't we? Like, we've, we've experienced that at some minimal level in our lives. At some point, we've experienced joy. And we go, how do I get more of that? I want more of that feeling. And so we're all on a hunt to try and find joy. 
And so we ask, ask ourselves, like, where are we going to find it? Where, where does joy actually come from? I want to suggest three ways that the world would define how we get our joy. Um, there's a researcher named Ingrid Lee, and she has a TED Talk that's fairly popular, and, and it's called Where Joy Hides and How to Find It. Right? And her assessment in this idea of where do you actually get joy? We know we can, when we find it, we know it's there, but how do we actually get it? How do we go after it? And she does all this uh, anecdotal research with people where she's asking, man, when do you feel joy last? What does it look like? And, and her kind of assessment is she says, man, it's tied to physical things, right? Tactile things that we can touch and see and smell. And so in her research, she says, man, uh, anytime I put these things, these objects in front of people, they go, yeah, that's where I get joy. Some of the things that she found that were across all uh, types of people were bubbles <laughs> and googly eyes <laughs> and ice cream cones with sprinkles and confetti. She goes, okay, so like, if that's true, she says, there's colors and they're the shapes of joy. Like she would say that joy begins with the senses, she says in her TED talk. And she uses this phrase, aesthetics of joy. And so her uh, hypothesis is going like, oh, we need to create spaces of joy. We need to bring in color. We need to bring in shapes. We need to not think it's childish, but realize that's actually where we can find joy. That's her assessment of where you go after it. If you were on Netflix at all in maybe the last couple of years, there was a show called Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. And she's this lady that comes in and helps you kind of organize your closet and your garage. And I'm all for that because we have so much junk, it's ridiculous, right? Like all of us, me included. And one of her methods, this is what she would do. She would come into your space and she would say, here's what you need to do. You need to pick up this object and you hold it in your hands. I'm not gonna do that with the Bible. That's not. You hold it in your hands and you ask this question. What's the question, people? See, you guys know. Does this spark joy is the question, okay? So my wife's telling me about the show. She likes to have things organized. She's, I appreciate it. So like now I'm gonna call it, oh, all right, I'm going in my closet and I grab my bow tie. Does, does it spark joy? I don't, what, I don't know. What, what, am I supposed to feel something? What's, what's, how does this actually work? Right? Um, and she has these five questions that she runs through to kind of give you some framework. And, and here's the question. She goes, do, do I like this? Does it benefit me? Does it make me better? Do I emotionally value this object that's in my hands? And then this last one. Is this item, if this item was destroyed, would I be relieved or would I be sad? Based on those questions, you either hang on to that object because it does spark joy in your life or you get rid of it, right? And another popular voice in our culture, Brene Brown, who, I, she has some great things to say that I really line up with and there's some other things that I'm like, I, I, no. Um, Brene Brown says in this conversation of joy, she says that joy is the scariest emotion. That's kind of an interesting concept. She has this conversation that I watched this week. She says, man, joy is the scariest concept. And here's why. And she goes, she uses this example. She goes, when I'm talking to a whole bunch of people, and I ask this question, I say, have you ever stood over your child when they were sleeping? And you look at them and you go, I never knew I could feel this way about somebody. Like, I never knew I could feel a depth of love over somebody like this before. 
And then she says, as soon as you say that, this uh, thought comes rushing into your mind that says, this is the worst thing that's going to happen to this person. Has that ever happened? And when she says that, she goes, everybody goes like, yep, that's happened to me. I know what that means. And so she says, what we do is we circumvent joy. That's why it's the scariest emotion, because it leads to our vulnerability. And we go, you know what? I can't even imagine that worst thing happening to the person I love, to my child. And so because of that, I'm just going to kind of push it down. And I'm going to get in front of if anything terrible would happen. And so we shut ourselves off to joy, she would say, because it's the scariest emotion. And in her research, she would say the antidote to that, to that problem, instead of pushing joy down, what we do is we practice gratitude. Like in all of her research, she says that practicing gratitude and experiencing joy are connected. Now, man, I, I think it's great to bring in beautiful aesthetics, color, sprinkles, all the, I think that's great. Right? I can appreciate the need to throw things away that we don't need in our house. I can appreciate that. I can appreciate having gratitude in your heart. There's something biblical about having gratitude and speaking gratitude. That's the, those are good things. But if that's where we find joy, like it's an incomplete way to go after it. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, like what does the Bible tell us about this emotion that's true in us for all of mankind? Where do we really go after joy? I want to suggest three things for us this morning. If you're taking notes, you can write these three things down as we walk through um, these four verses in Habakkuk. Uh, number one is that joy does not mean the absence of suffering. Joy doesn't mean the absence of suffering. Number two, joy is not about what you have, but about who you're with. Joy is not about what you have, but it's about who you're with. And then the third one is that joy is a rhythm rehearsed by God's people. It's a rhythm rehearsed by God's people. Let's see in the text how this shows up. Habakkuk chapter 3, starting in verse 16. Verse 16. This is what... He says, and even before, even before I read that, um, I think, uh, when I think about joy, I think about the movie Inside Out. You guys seen that Pixar movie before? Man, what a great movie by, by Pete Docter. And if you haven't seen the movie, the, the basis of the movie is there's this girl named Riley, and she's moving from Minnesota to San Francisco with her family. She's kind of preteen, and, and she's starting to develop in her emotions and her feelings. And, and the context of the movie is her emotions are played out specifically in her brain. They're kind of controlling certain emotions and things. And so they have anger, and they've got joy and disgust and um, um, and sadness. And if you remember Joy, she's the yellow character. She's just always happy and like, man, Riley has joy when she does make-believe and all these things. And, and then sadness, like as she grows as a human, her emotions start integrating. You remember? And, and Joy like doesn't like this. She doesn't like that sadness comes into some of these core memories. And so at one point, even in the movie, she, she sticks sadness in the corner. And she draws a chalk circle around. She goes, okay, you're just going to stay here for the day, sadness. Don't, don't leave this circle. Because Joy can't understand how sadness fits into how she feels emotionally, what she wants Riley to experience. And sometimes in the church, I feel like we're like that. 
We know Jesus has saved us, and so we should come into these doors, and we should put a smile on, and we should be happy, and that joy should overtake any other emotions we might be feeling. The problem is the scriptures doesn't talk about joy like that. Read the Psalms, read lament like God is calling us to be honest with our emotions, not pretend. We see that even in our passage. So uh, verse 16 of chapter 3, Habakkuk starts the end of his prayer this way, this psalm. He says, I hear, my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. If you look at that one verse, how would you describe how Habakkuk is feeling in his body? All right, look down at your Bible again. It, it, my body trembles, my lips quiver, rottenness enters my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. He's experiencing anxiety. Right? He's anxious about his circumstances. He's anxious about whether God's going to respond to him. Because as he looks on the horizon, he doesn't see it anywhere. And for us, we go, well, like, doesn't the Bible say, like, we're not supposed to be anxious? I'm pretty sure I read that somewhere in, like, a coffee mug or a Christian bookstore. Right? Like, like, Philippians 4, Paul says, like, do not be anxious for anything, but in everything through prayer and supplication, through thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. We're not supposed to be anxious people as Christians. But you read that verse, but if you go two chapters before that, Paul is sending somebody to church, and you know the reason he says in chapter 2 why he's sending them to the church? He says, so that I would be anxious less. So he's anxious. In 2 Corinthians, he writes this letter to the church and he describes himself as in great distress and anguish of heart. Or you look at Jesus and in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, he's like, don't worry, don't worry. But then you look at the Garden of Gethsemane when he's about to step into the worst suffering known to man. Jesus is described as Again, greatly distressed and troubled. And he says to his disciples, my soul is sorrowful even to death. How do we connect these two that seem to contradict each other with our emotions? Like, Because I don't think it's the idea of like, we can't experience anxiety. That's not the point. It comes on you. This is part of living in a broken world. We need to realize that stuff will come at us that we don't like even emotionally, just like Habakkuk in this moment. But it's not about staying anxious. That's the difference. You don't let anxiety rule you, but you shift and you change, and you ask God to change you, even in the midst of it. So it's not about being anxious, but about not staying anxious. And again, Habakkuk is honest with his feelings. Man, I just, I just love this. Like, he doesn't pretend. He's basically having a panic attack. He can feel it in his body. What's his solution? The end of verse 16 there, if you look at it again, he says, yet I will quietly wait. I will quietly wait. When you feel anxiety rushing over your body, have you experienced that? You feel a weight on your chest, your legs start shaking, you can't stop it, you can't get your mind to stop, and you physically feel it. You're going, I know I don't want to feel this, I can't believe I'm feeling this, but some reason your body is doing something to you. When that happens, how do you do about waiting? 
It's like the most counterintuitive thing ever. You're going, I don't want to wait for this. I want this to be over. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to experience this. But what he tells us is actually to wait on the Lord is the best antidote for what's going on with you physically. And in the midst of this Advent season, we do something very unusual for our culture. We wait in anticipation. John Horry and his family have been here for the last several months. They just moved out here from California. He works with uh, a ministry called See Jesus that we're partnering with to, to build this discipleship framework. They're not here today. They're in California for the holidays. But um, something he's written down that has just, like, I, can't, I can't, can't get it out of my mind. And, like, you know when you get those quotes, it's like, I wish I didn't read that. Like, ah. But I, I can't get it unstuck. This is what John says about waiting. He says, you can't force resurrection. You have to wait for it. That's the worst. Right? Because I have things in my life. I have relationships in my life. I have circumstances in my life. They need resurrection desperately. Man, I don't want to wait for it. God, I want you to raise it now. I want you to fix it now. Like, I don't want to be in this mess, but actually, I need to wait for it. There's something outside of me that needs to do the changing, that needs to do the resurrection. And what we're doing when we come to the king's table every single week, when you walk down this aisle, if you're a follower of Jesus and part of this church, and you take the bread, which represents his body, and the cup, which represents the, the sins shed for, or the blood shed for your sin on the cross, what you're doing is you're actively waiting for his return. You're practicing the idea of waiting, even in the midst of your suffering. So when you walk down, you go, man, my week was terrible this week. I had some really bad stuff. As you're walking down, you go, but you know what? God's going to eventually make it right one day. And I'm going to put my trust in that, not in my circumstances. That you can actually experience joy, even in the midst of your terrible circumstances. That you can do that. And that's why we come down and we practice active waiting at the table, which brings joy to ourselves. So that's number one. That joy does not mean the absence of suffering. Number two, joy is not about what you have, but about who you're with. Joy is not about what you have, but about who you're with. Let's continue on in our text in verse 17. Again, 16, he's going, man, like I'm having a panic attack, but I'm going to wait for the Lord quietly. And then he says this in verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy the God of my salvation. Habakkuk's joy is in direct con contrast for the Babylonians who are about to come in and capture him early on in the book in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. It describes the Babylonians and where they get their joy, that they live in luxury and they enjoy choice food. And Habakkuk is going, it's the opposite for me right now. He's going, I don't have any money. I don't have any prospects. I'm single. I'm not even dating anybody. And I love the honesty that he gives us here. He doesn't like pretend. He's going, well, like, there's some stuff. Like, it's going to work out. Like, it'll be fine. Like, no, he goes, there's nothing. I got nothing. 
I'm looking around. It's totally desolate. I feel totally desperate. If I don't have you, Lord, like I don't have anything. I don't have anything. He's honest in his circumstances. He's not pretending. My wife and I, this last week, we drove up on Monday to Prescott, Arizona. Um, our son, our middle son plays basketball, and it's a senior year, and, and normally we don't go up and make that trip because it's an hour and a half up or whatever, and we're like, well, this is last year. Let's go see. We have time in our schedule. So we get in the car about 5 o'clock. They play at 7 o'clock. We get about a half hour up I-17, and it starts raining. You're laughing. You know, I said these death trap, right? Like it's, it starts raining. And then within five minutes, it starts snowing, like really heavily snowing. And so we're all slowing down. Nobody knows that driving the snow in the state, right? Like we're, sl- we're slowing down to about 15 miles an hour. Snow is coming at us. It's really hard to see visibly. And we're about three miles from our exit to get off and, and, and get off to the highway to, to Prescott High. So in the midst of that, we're three miles away and then it comes a dead stop. And we see it, three cars in front of us starting to drive, and, and nobody knows how to drive. Themselves. And so it's like they're, they're just spinning out, and three cars just slide into each other, and it's just a dead stop. I got a semi right next to me, a semi in front of me, and then those three cars. Here's what it looks like. There's a picture, okay? We sat for an hour. Just nobody, it's like, and it's just continuing to dump snow. And as it's doing that, I'm going like, Okay, what, uh, what are we gonna do here? Like, I'm not sure what my options are. My, my Toyota Camry, like, uh, there's a little bit of a, a hill that we're about to come up on. I'm going like, I'm not, I'm not gonna go anywhere, right? So what do I do? I FaceTime Johnny Gussick, who's a firefighter. I'm like, okay, what do I do? Is somebody coming? Should I, like, I'm just think, assuming we're just gonna be off to the side of the road and we're gonna be stuck overnight here. You know, until it melts, like, what, like, so eventually, people are all getting out of their cars because we've been sitting here for an hour. They start, they, they get the wreck kind of off to the side so that there's a little lane on the left-hand side. Trucks start to go through. As I talk to John, he's like, hey, if there's enough tire tracks, you'll be fine. Go slow. Drop it under low gear. You'll be okay. And so we eventually are able to pass, and we get off the highway. The game's already over. We just drive straight home. Four and a half hours on the road for what? Nothing, right? Like... But in the midst of that situation where I'm like, we're, we're probably going to have to stay the night here. I'm with my wife, and I'm going, we weren't in harm. This is inconvenient, right? It's kind of annoying. But even if we were at harm, like, I'm going like, you're with me. We will do what, like, we'll be fine. Those moments, like my wife and I have been married 22 years, and there's been up and downs in our marriage. There's been snowfall in our marriage. There's been financial crisis in our marriage. There's been relational strife in our marriage. But I go, you know what? If we're good, we'll be fine. We can let all these other things happen, but if you and I are good, we're going to make it together. We'll be okay. And we've walked through hard, hard things in our life and our marriage because we're at the side of each other going, we're going to be okay. We're going to make this through. As long as we have each other, we can do anything. Do you feel like that about your relationship with Christ? That's what Habakkuk is saying. Like, even if, even if the Lord took my kids, my wife, even if he took my wife, I would still go, no, we're going to be okay. Because, Lord, I have you. 
That's where I find my joy. That's where I know I can get through it. So if you're in a circumstance and you're going, man, I'm so frustrated at this. I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense. Are you getting your joy? Not from the things that are working well for you, but you're going, no, I've got you, Lord. Like, you're going to get me through this. Like, we can go through this together. Even though it's hard, even though I don't understand it, even though it's confusing, I am with you and you are with me. And we can get through this. That's why the idea of joy is not about what you have, but about who you're with. And when you come down to dine at the king's table, the reason that I, can, I have that emotional connection with my wife is because we've been dining for 22 years in marriage together, the ups and the downs. And so there's a relational connection, a bond that we have over those years that have matured and continues to mature. I mean, if my wife and I got married and we only saw each other for an hour a week and we only talked when like I really needed something like what kind of relationship would that be but some of us that's how we treat our relationship with God it's like we come to church once a week for an hour maybe once a week and like and then we we ask God if we need something and then we're frustrated that we don't have this connection with God and just like I could trust my wife because of our relational connection, like I've been dining with Christ longer than that. And so I go, even in the midst of my circumstances, when they don't make sense to me, I don't understand them, I can still find joy because Christ is with me. And if you're in Christ, if you made that decision for Christ, do you know you sit at the king's table? Do you know when you come down and you partake of this body and this blood that he's saying, like, listen, it doesn't matter what happened in your week or your circumstances are terrible. You're just going to be honest about it. But we're together. You're with me. And you know what? I'm coming back. I'm going to come back and I'm going to make it all right. And that's where you get your joy. That's where you get your hope from that truth. First thing, again, is that joy doesn't mean the absence of suffering. The second is joy is not what you have, but who you're with. The third and last one is that joy is a rhythm rehearsed by God's people. A rhythm rehearsed by God's people. Let's look at this last verse in verse 19. He says, God, the Lord, is my strength, makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread on high places. How does Habakkuk take joy in the Lord, the God of his salvation, in the midst of his terrible circumstances? I mean, this sounds terrible in circumstances. How does he find joy in the midst of that? He has a rhythm of both imagination and song. Right? This You see it at the end of the chapter in verse 19. All of chapter 3 is actually a song. He's actually singing these words. And there's something about when we sing that even if you do the, the science of our brains, it changes a pattern in us when we sing together. God has hardwired it for his people to sing. I mean, we've talked about this before. Man. Like, think about the rest of your week. You come into this space on Sunday morning, and besides maybe if you're at a karaoke bar, maybe at a sporting event at the end of the game, Maybe you're caroling during this season. Where do you walk in with people and just start singing? It's weird. Like, it's just bizarre. You don't do that. You don't walk to work and start singing with your coworkers. But in the rhythm of God and the way he's designed us, we stand and sing together. And you know why. 
mean, Josh Miles, who was our worship pastor for years, he used to say, we sing each other forward. Because some days you're going to walk into this room and you can't sing. If you're honest with yourself, if you're honest with your circumstances, you're honest with things that are going on in your life, you have no words. You can't say anything. But your neighbor, your brother, your sister, they can sing for you. Sometimes you just need to come in and you just need to weep and let somebody else sing for you. I love that we have the lights up when we sing because I watch you, I know your stories, we have conversation. And when I watch you raise your hands and when I watch you sing in the midst of your circumstances that we're walking through together and you're trusting God that the joy is not in your circumstances, the joy is in Him. And you're raising your hands by faith and you're singing. You know what, it does something to me. It should do something to each other. And man, I love, man, I've talked about, I love getting my Bose headphones and I'll get in my office and those are noise canceling and you can't, I can't hear myself sing, which is a good thing. And I'm just in the morning, just, you know, I'm like, I'm singing and like there's a connection about that and intimacy with God about that that I love. But there's something different when I get in this room, when I get with other believers to sing changes and it reminds me of the joy I have, not in my circumstances, but in who we're with. That's why we sing together. Not only is this a song, but Habakkuk in remembering his joy, he has an imagination. I love this quote from Henry now, and he says, joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy, keep choosing it every day. Right? There's a muscle that needs to get flexed. And in our culture, man, this is just, uh, I just think our imagination muscle has atrophied. How much do you imagine anymore? I mean, think about it. Like, everything is a screen in front of us. We don't really read books anymore. Some of us do. Like, even fiction, like, it makes your imagination figure out what's going on in the story and to slow down and to think and to contemplate. There's something about our spiritual nature of understanding our joy and our faith that our imagination biblically needs to get resurfaced. We need to flex that muscle, and that's what we do in here on Sundays, and that's what we see Habakkuk doing in this passage. Here's where I see that. Like, um, I, I imagine, I don't know for sure, I imagine when he's writing this, he's not looking at a deer. I imagine his imagination is triggered, and he's going, do you know what I feel like when all my circumstances are gone, and I surrender myself to the Lord? And I remember where my joy comes from. Do you know what God does in my body? I'm not trembling anymore. You know what he does? He makes me go on the heights like the deer. Have you ever seen a white-tailed deer jump? Watch this video. This is, this is, I imagine, what Habakkuk is thinking when he writes this down. Let's go ahead and play this. It's real short. Just to, for some of us that don't know how deer jump, Let's go ahead and watch this and see what it looks like. We can play that video. Insane. 
that a deer can leap like that so quickly. And that's what Habakkuk is saying. He's saying, listen, I don't see anything on the horizon. This is how my body feels. I'm going to wait on the Lord. I still don't see anything on the horizon. But you know what? As I trust in the Lord, as I'm reminded of the Lord through song, through my imagination, this is what it makes me think of. And when you know, if you really know Jesus and you have an intimate connection with him and you surrender yourself, even in the midst of your circumstances, do you know what he does to your heart? He does that. He makes you go on the heights like that deer. There's nothing else in the world that will get you there except Jesus. I'm so convinced in my bones of that. As I surrender my life to Christ, as you surrender your life to Christ time and time again, as you choose joy because you're choosing him, the psalmist says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. That he will do that to you. And then you'll go about your day and you'll look at your circumstances and you'll forget. And you'll be reminded of what's in front of you. And you go, ah, I gotta get back to being reminded. And that's why we take communion every single week. To be reminded that when you walk down to receive the bread and the cup, that you would have your imagination going. That you would go, even in the midst of what's going on, and I see it, and I don't understand that, like one day, that relationship that I'm scarred from, it's going to be made right. Like that pain, that suffering that I'm seeing in that person, that cancer, that illness, one day it's going to be made right again. And it's only through the blood of Christ and Him returning. Just like God's people were waiting for the Messiah to come, we are waiting for Him to return. And we need to flex those imagination muscles, people. That's why we get together and do this on Sunday. We don't do it just to make ourselves feel good or check a box that I went to church. No, we need to realign ourselves with where we find our joy. And that's why we take the bread and that's why we take the cup. And so we're going to do that as we do every single week. We're going to respond in singing. And we're going to respond in coming down if you're a follower of Jesus and taking a piece of bread, which represents his body given to you you're going to dip it in the juice, which represents his blood shed for your sins, and be made whole again. We often offer a response when we're up here, whether it's the person preaching or somebody else, just instructions, which I think is helpful and kind for the people that aren't normally here and their guests, and to say, okay, this is kind of how we move uh, functionally during our response time. We're going to sing, and we're going to give, and we're going to pray together. And then we're going to receive the table together. And we move row by row. We head this way. Uh, one of your brothers or sisters will hand you a piece of bread. You just hold it. Your hands open in a posture of receiving. There's something intentional about the formation of that. And you dip it in the juice. And so we're going to continue to instruct people as we do. But if you've been noticing since the last three weeks, and this will be the fourth week, we're not only trying to give you response instructions, we're trying to give you a response invitation. And... Somebody from the worship team has been reading an invitation every week about Jesus inviting you to the table. The reason we're doing that is to engage your imagination. Instead of you just walking down and like, well, this is just what we do. We take communion and ah, I kind of feel bad about it or guilty. I'm not even really thinking about it. I just know I need, to, I need to take it. We're trying to create space for you just to slow down and remember the goodness of the God that pursues you. 
He's inviting you to the table this morning, even in the midst of your circumstance. And that's where you find your joy. Man, we need this every week, right? We need the word, we need preaching, we need singing, but man, we need the table to remind us of our relationship with Christ. And so just like we sing the doxology at the every end of every Sunday, and I watch you when we sing the doxology, it does not seem old. When I watch you, it does not seem rote, it does not seem routine, but there's something about the doxology that connects with your heart in formation. We've been singing it for the last six years together at the end of every single service. And when I think about formation over time, and I think about that doxology, when we first started singing it, I think about my kids. I think about my boys. I think about if we ever went to war, and my sons were in some type of situation, in some type of foxhole, with their lives in danger, I think that's what they would sing. I hope they would sing that doxology because week after week it's been forming and shaping them over time. That's what we want the table to do in us. That it wouldn't be road, it wouldn't be routine, but it would be like, as I come down, I engage what's true about coming to the king's table to partake and get substance and get life. And so we want to do that every week. That over time it changes us through the power of God's Spirit. Let's do that this morning. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for your words to us this morning that we can be honest in our emotions and what's going on in our physical bodies. That God, there's something about waiting on you that we're called to, which is countercultural. God, thanks that. Our joy is not based on what we have, but on based on who we're with, and we're with you if we know you. And Father, that you call us to rehearse this practice of singing, of imagination, to trust all those things to be true by faith. Thanks to your God that loves us, that cares for us deeply. Pray that we would respond well to that love and care this morning. We love you and pray in your name. Amen.